Chapter Ten of Mounted Police Life in Canada. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mounted Police Life in Canada by Captain Burton Dean. Chapter Ten, nineteen o six to fourteen, Calgary. When I went to Calgary in July, nineteen o six. The population there was about 15,000 souls, and in the five or six following years it mounted up to 65,000 or thereabouts. In the barracks the commanding officer's quarters had been torn down, having been declared uninhabitable on account of age. They were a little over 30 years old. The barrack reserve consisted of rather more than 35 acres, situated on the north side of the Bow at its confluence with the Elbow River, which later bounded the reserve on its eastern side, and along the northern boundary ran the Canadian Pacific Railway. I was instructed that I might build myself a house on the site of the old one, which had been prettily situated, and the sum of $5,000 was appropriated for the purpose. A suitable plan was soon obtained, and the work was put in hand without delay in August. The excavation of a basement was made by prisoners from the guard-room. The supervision of the work was entrusted to our division carpenter, named Joseph, who was a most capable mechanic, and who left us soon after to go into business for himself at Okotoks. I said to my staff, Give the working party all the meat they want to eat, and charge the excess ration to me, but tell them also that I want to be living in that house by Christmas." the consequence was that the men worked willingly and well and gave no sort of trouble it happened at that time that the carpenters union took it into their heads that their wages should be increased by ten cents per hour and at the increased rate of fifty-five cents the cost of my house exceeded the estimate by one thousand two hundred dollars no exception however was taken to that at ottawa there was nothing mean about the police department so long as sir wilfrid laurier was at the head of it he is the best friend that the mounted police ever had he gave them their pension bill and took a personal interest in the force any money bill affecting the mounted police passed through the house of commons without a murmur to wit the vote of thirty five thousand dollars to defray the expenses of the mounted police contingent attending the king's coronation my house it was finished early in december nineteen o six was certainly the best house in the mounted police occupancy at that date albeit it was a lone house for me to go into as the dear mother of my children whom i had been obliged to send for treatment to the pacific coast died there on the day before christmas eve nineteen o six and my christmas day was spent in travelling thither to bring back her remains for burial at lethbridge my house had a twelve-foot-wide veranda on the south and east sides, and this came in very handy in the summer of 1907, when it became a question of entertaining His Royal Highness Prince Fushimi of Japan. That nobleman had been to England on his royal master's business to the king of all the Britons, and was on his way home. Some angel of light had suggested to him that he should see Calgary on his way through the Rocky Mountains. The problem for me was that the royal foreigner desired to spend half a day in Calgary, and what could be done for his entertainment. In reply to the official letter, I said that I should be glad to entertain the prince and his suite to luncheon, 
and it would go hard if I could not, in the interval, devise some sort of amusement to attract his interest. To a man who had commanded an army of a hundred thousand men in the Russo-Japanese War, it was idle to think of anything in the nature of a military display. My reply as to the luncheon brought a prompt answer from Comptroller Fred White at Ottawa. I shall be glad to foot the bill. And upon me then descended Mr. Commissioner Perry. The program that we arranged between us was that a travelling escort should meet the train on its arrival, with a four-horse wagon for the prince and pair-horse carriages for his staff, and that the visitors should be shown as much of Calgary as was possible in a thirty-minute drive. This drive was to terminate at the barracks, where the party were to be transferred to motor-cars and taken into the country some ten or twelve miles to see a horse-ranch of repute, the owners of which were going out of business and were making preparations to sell their stock, etc., by auction in the very near future. The party was then to be brought back to the city to witness an exhibition game of polo, which the Calgary Club had genially offered to get up for the prince's edification. And after that, he and his suite were to be given luncheon at my house. The prince's westbound special train was timed to leave at three o'clock in the afternoon, and every member of my command appreciated the nicety of my lifelong dictum that three o'clock meant exactly sixty minutes after two in order to see how we could most profitably fill in the thirty minutes that we had to start with i went out one afternoon with the team that was to drive the prince and drove at a good smart trot round the roads which would show the most prominent points of interest and timed the drive by my watch i was unexpectedly delayed at the principal fire quarters by the chief of the fire brigade, who said that they had just had a new electric plant installed, and would I, could I, arrange to get the prince to open the new addition by stopping on the way for one moment, opposite the fire hall, on his road to the railway station from the barracks, and ask him to press the necessary button. I thought then, as I still think, that Calgary's fire brigade, under its competent chief, commonly called Cappy Smart, is Calgary's greatest asset, and I readily assented. But show me, I bargained, where the carriage is to stop, where the string will be hanging that is to carry the button, and mark the spot where the escort is to halt. It happened that the stopping place was across the road from the fire hall, so that the prince and his suite would be well out of the way, they would have a good view of the proceedings, and their journey would not be interfered with. That was all satisfactorily settled and I took out my watch to time my return to the barracks. In turning up a street from the avenue in question, when the horses had got well into their stride, we crossed a blind drain, which had been insufficiently filled in, and as the hind wheels of my spring wagon crossed it, they bumped into the soft depression, which was not noticeable from the road, and I was shot up into the air for something like six inches. When I came down upon the seat, I suffered the most excruciating pain that I ever felt in my life. I made noise enough to stop the driver, and was then no more able to whisper to him to call at Dr. Sanson's house, which we had to pass. The doctor was fortunately at home. He climbed into the wagon with me, and the horses walked very gingerly home. The doctor undressed me and put me to bed, and went away saying, "'I'll send you a nurse. You require a massage.' for that injury to your spine. It will fit in here, as well as anywhere, to
to say that my nurse was a daughter of Captain Barry Valentine de Henny, one of the Twelfth Royal Lancers, and subsequently Governor of Kilmainham Jail, wherein the late Mr. Charles Stuart Parnell was incarcerated. Captain de Haney, on retirement from the English prison service, at seventy years of age or over, went to western Canada and died in Calgary. His daughter graduated in nursing at Victoria, British Columbia, had all sorts of experiences in San Francisco at the time of the earthquake there, and had, at the time of which I write, gravitated back to Calgary, where her father's remains were resting with those of others of her family. As there was nothing for me to do, but to be massaged twice a day and to lie on my back for the rest of the time, my nurse had to act as my eyes and ears, and an intelligent department generally, and well she did it. I had a competent, working housekeeper, who was quite equal to the occasion of cooking a good luncheon for the party, and I had no misgivings on that account, but there was shopping to be done, every conceivable arrangement to be thought out, and I could only do the thinking while my nurse did the rest, and it kept her busy. There were twelve persons, all told, in the prince's suite, and they, with Mr. Commissioner Perry, my two subalterns, Inspector Doofus and Shaw, and myself, completed two tables of eight each. One table in the dining-room, and the other in the drawing-room. My next-door neighbour, Mrs. Doofus, as good a neighbour as a man ever had, had undertaken to provide the cut glass, silver, cutlery, etc., for one table, and this relieved me of great anxiety, for my household had not been designed to provide for more than a dozen people at the outside. The menu I selected was well within my housekeeper's ample capabilities, and I studied the Times cookery book, which I had recently bought, for etc. The book had been compiled by a famous ex-chef of Delmonico's in New York, and would bear quite a lot of study. In it I found a sauce tartare, which was new to me and which I determined to have. I had, as a matter of fact, outlined all the arrangements before I was hurt. I had engaged a Mr. Augade, a French musician, to make himself responsible for the small string band required. I had seen the florist about table decorations and a decorative screen of shrubs, etc., for the front of the balcony, where the band was to be ensconced. The florist was also to provide the word Banze in Smilax letters for the veranda at the front door entrance, and the superintendent of the Canadian Pacific dining car system had undertaken to provide four waiters for the midday in question. The sergeant major had written instructions as to the hauling up and down of the Japanese flag, and I had, humanly speaking, left nothing to chance. My trouble at the time of which I write consisted in seeing that all my arrangements should be properly carried out. When the eventful day arrived, everything passed off according to schedule. The travelling escort, under Inspector Shaw, was fully up to the mounted police level, which had been fully established on the occasion of His Royal Highness the Duke of York's visit, and the carriages, being spring-seated wagons, were good enough. When the special train hurtled into the station, every horse of the escort stood on his hind legs and pawed the air with his front feet, but, as a newspaper report subsequently said, the riders of the plains quickly got them in hand again, and when His Highness emerged from his car, they all stood stock still in their rank. The prescribed drive round Calgary was taken, and at barracks 
the members of the party were transferred to motor-cars, which were all in readiness. Inspector Dufus drove Prince Fushimi in his own car, and led the procession. At the ranch there was a good lot of horses to be seen, and one His Highness pronounced to be the finest horse he had ever seen in his life. Back to town, to the polo ground, travelled the party, and thence to the barracks, where they sat down to lunch at two o'clock. The dining-room was under the room which I was occupying. Commissioner Perry ran into me for one moment to say that everything had gone like clockwork, and that there had been no hitch anywhere. I reminded him that the escort and carriages were ordered for a quarter to three. Just before that, in came Inspector Shaw to say that the Under-Secretary of State objected to any change in the programme, meaning the opening of the fire-hall. I replied, the Under-Secretary of State has had nothing to do with the programme and is not going to be allowed to interfere now. You have got your order, Shaw. Yes, sir. Carry them out to the letter. You know where the carriage is to stop. Yes, sir. Say nothing to anybody. Just carry out your instructions and deliver the party at the station by three o'clock. Away went Shaw, and away went my guests. A slight delay occurred at the fire-hall, as nothing would induce the prince to press the necessary button. One of his staff, however, did it eventually. The fire-hall doors flew open, the fire-horses jumped into their collars, and out-galloped the fire-brigade in a very gratifying style. My outfit went on its way rejoicing, and delivered its passengers on the railway platform at sixty minutes after two o'clock. The vice-regal party were then bound for Bamp, where they were timed to stay a day or two, and where the prince hoped to get some fishing. It happened that there was stationed there at that time, in charge of the mounted police detachment at Bankhead, a corporal, now inspector, Townsend, who was an enthusiastic and knowledgeable fisherman. He was instructed to take Prince Fushimi under his wing, and he accordingly took him out in a boat on one of the lakes where fish were abundant. It so happened that at his first cast, the prince caught two fish on one hook, and was so delighted that he laughed heartily. His staff said it was the first time he had laughed since leaving Montreal. We had done the best we could for him, and there was nothing more to be said. My nurse stayed with me in all for eleven days, and after she had left I found that life was insupportable without her bright eyes, cheery manner, and Irish wit and, to cut a long story short, I haunted her in a quiet, persistent fashion until she consented to marry me. We were married by Father Jan, Roman Catholic priest at Calgary, on April twenty-second, 1908. This was the year in which, on April 30th, I attained my 60th birthday, and mounted police regulations, provided that, unless an officer married before he became 60 years of age, there would be no pension accruing to his widow. As my bride-elect was fifteen years younger than myself, I did not think it prudent to take any unnecessary chances in that direction, and we were thus married a little earlier than we proposed. On September 20th, when the Alma Heights were won, 1911, my dear wife was ordered to hospital for treatment, suffering from pneumonia. That night pleurisy set in, and as a complication her foot had to be amputated. This was a terrible loss to the patient, as she had always been such a very active woman. Even after that, she nearly lost her life in the month of December, in the same year, having to undergo an operation 
for empiema. So little a flicker of life remained in her after the operation that she could not be moved from the operation table for four hours, and she unquestionably owed her life to the surgical skill of my eldest son, who was practicing in Calgary, and who was her medical attendant from first to last. We tided over Christmas, and the outlook was very hopeful. For the first time in twenty-eight years, the mounted police did not give their annual ball in 1911, nor since. E-Division had always, from the days of barbarism, given a New Year's Eve ball, and old-timers never failed to attend it when possible. But in 1911 the subject was never mooted, and I was too sick at heart to raise it. As the weeks rolled into months, we dispensed first with a night nurse, and after a time with a day nurse, and substituted a lady companion, without whom, after some months, we found that we could do. In November 1913, my wife gave an afternoon tea party, not in her own house, where the racket would have been too great for her, but in a Calgary restaurant, where they had just caught on to that idea of so attracting custom, and she was like her old self, and her many guests were glad to be welcomed by her genial smile. As the year 1913 drew to a close, I began to feel less satisfied with my wife's condition, and talked to my son about it. He reminded me that he had always been apprehensive, and had warned me, as he had, of the possibility of tuberculosis intervening in her medical history, and he had had, more than once, analysis made of the patient's sputum. On March 27, 1914, I received information verifying the diagnosis. While we were in process of packing up to vacate the barracks for the benefit of the Grand Turk Pacific Railway, as a matter of fact, we turned out of our quarters into a house in Calgary, which the government had rented for us on April the 1st. The guard room was not emptied of its prisoners, nor were the buildings occupied by our men and horses vacated until some days later. But I personally did not choose to be under an obligation to the Grand Turk Pacific Railway, and moved myself and my belongings off their premises on the date stated. I was then in a position to talk to them, and the opportunity soon arose. As I have previously indicated, the lawn and gardens surrounding my official quarters were made by my own self. I had, for instance, a caragana hedge, to which I had devoted a good deal of time and thought and some money. I had watched over it for seven or eight years, and had sworn loudly and coherently when some maniacal cricketer now and then had dashed through it in pursuit of his ball, when he might have gone round. But that has nothing to do with this point. The management of the Calgary Cricket Club always used to protect my garden and its surroundings as far as they could, and if a light of my cucumber or melon frame was broken by a stray ball, I did not mind, but I had a rooted objection to anyone running through my hedge. The hedge which I had planted I had taken up and given to an old lady friend, who had just moved to a new house. One afternoon, soon after, I was called up by telephone in respect of this action by Mr. Zimmerman, solicitor of the Grand Trunk Pacific Railway, which had purchased this land. I explained sweetly that I had only been giving away my own property. "'We'll see about that,' he thundered. You need not worry, I rejoined. I have seen about it. The last load has just gone. And herewith I hung up the telephone and left him talking. End of chapter 10